Hey, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. Uh, Pastor Eric is out playing in Alaska and doing Alaskan-type things, so uh, I get the opportunity to, to open the Word uh, with you guys this morning, and I'm excited to get to do it in person. Uh, I think last time I preached, it was to a camera, and that wasn't as fun. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you for being here uh, with us. We are thankful that people can be joining us uh, online uh, as well, that there's multiple ways to, to be a part and connected, uh, but it is my, uh, my joy to, to get to teach uh, you guys this morning. But with that, I could use some prayer, uh, so let's do that together. Uh, Lord, I am uh, very thankful for uh, your church, for the opportunity to gather together uh, with those that, that love you and those that are maybe just curious about you, God, but an opportunity to come and hear uh, from your word. I'm also thankful, Lord, that we live uh, in a time where uh, technology allows uh, those that can't be here in person to be connected with us, to be a part, and to be um, encouraged through worship and uh, instructed through uh, the word of the Lord. Um, so I'm thankful that we can, uh, can still connect on those ways. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray uh, that you would uh, just allow your word to speak powerfully. We're going to look at a, at a very familiar passage this morning. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be turned on, that our minds would be engaged, and that we would hear what you would have us hear this morning. I ask for your help with these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're continuing on with our summer series on uh, encounters with Jesus, and this morning uh, we're going to look at a, an encounter in John chapter 3, if you have your Bible uh, and you want to go there. Uh, one of the details about this story is that it occurs during the night, it occurs in the evening. Uh, and as I was thinking about that this week and kind of mulling over this passage, uh, I realized as someone that has spent 32 years of my life Living in Alaska, I have a broken understanding of what dark and night means, and it's all Alaska's fault, all right? To me, dark is, it's, it's everywhere, it's prevalent, and it, dark equals cold. You have that same association? If it's dark, it's cold. There's just no other option, and we get dark all winter, and then light, on the other hand, has this like limited edition quality, and when you have it, you just want to grab it and hold it because you know you won't have it for very long. Uh, and so Alaskans, we become sun junkies, right? And uh, we spend our summer bouncing like Tigger from one thing to the next, trying to, to soak up uh, all the sun. And then we know that the dark and the cold is going to come. And then we transition and become Eeyore and kind of sulk our way through the winter. So maybe that's just me. Maybe that's not you, but I'll, I'll be honest. But we have our, our sort of rhythms and, and we survive. Alaskans are tough. But it messes you up then if you try to leave Alaska. You can't leave again because then you go somewhere and you go outside and it's dark and it's warm and you're like, this is awesome, but it feels wrong, you know, like you're not doing it uh, right. So Alaska has, has messed me up uh, and it makes you unfit to, to live anywhere else after you've lived here for, for too long. Uh, here's a question maybe to, to think about if you have been uh, afflicted by Alaska's um, understanding of darkness the solstice was like three weeks ago, right? The, uh, that's the, all of the festivities we had this year. Uh, have you or anyone else around you said, since then, you know we're losing sunlight now? I found my, I said it to my wife a week or two ago. I was like, oh, no, I'm one of those people now. Uh, it's like this, like, Tigger rallying cry to, like, go out and you have, like, six weeks left to, to soak up uh, the light before the darkness comes. Well, today's sermon is called uh, Under the Cover of Darkness, but I don't want you to hear this as an Alaskan. Uh, this isn't Nicodemus's struggle with seasonal affective disorder. 
the solution to his situation is not a happy light. The only solution to Nicodemus' situation is a savior. Uh, and he's going to go out and, and meet Jesus on a, a likely warm and very pleasant evening uh, and go have a conversation with him under the cover of darkness. So that's where we're going to be uh, this morning in John chapter 3, if you want to join me as I read it. It says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So what we see in these opening verses is that Nicodemus was intrigued by Jesus. Now we're going to be introduced here by by John to Nicodemus and we're going to be told a few things about him to kind of help paint a mental picture of, of who Nicodemus is. The first thing that we're told about Nicodemus is that he was a Pharisee. And that's one of those words that that if you've been in church for any length of time, your spider senses start going off, and we all uh, tend to associate that with being a bad thing. He's a Pharisee. But I will tell you, it doesn't have to mean that. It does tell us that he was a very strict observer of the law, like all the laws, And then they even added bonus laws just to make sure they didn't get close to breaking the real laws, okay? Uh, Judaism uh, taught that the Old Testament had 613 commandments, 248 do's and 365 don'ts. I don't know what your house is like, but that is a lot of rules to live by. And now in order to become a Pharisee, you actually pledged in front of witnesses to uphold every detail of the law for the rest of your life. Uh, It was essentially like a marriage ceremony between you and the law. Now, before we all start booing the Pharisees, I want you to think about it this way. If you have kids, don't you kind of wish your kid was a Pharisee? Like, if you've got a Pharisee for a kid... Who's not thinking, jackpot, you know, just give them rules, they'll stay in their boundaries, and then I look like a great parent. You know, look at my obedient kid over there coloring while yours is over there eating paste, you know, my Pharisee kid for the win. (laughs) If you're an employer, you probably want a few Pharisees on your team, right? You're in the middle of the the interview, and they don't want to talk about compensation and salary. They just want to get the employee handbook so they can start memorizing it, so they know all the rules and how to turn in the forms and things like that. Like, we, if you're an employer, you love a good Pharisee. You want to crush a job interview? Be a Pharisee, all right? So I'm just trying to say, don't be so quick to to condemn Nicodemus. Just because we say a Pharisee, we don't all have to boo him and, and hiss at him, okay? We do learn from that that Nicodemus would have been very committed to studying the ins and outs of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, with huge sections of it being memorized. Uh, We're told that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, Jesus, later on, will call Nicodemus a teacher. So Nicodemus was likely a a somewhat older man in a a place of, of earned status. He would have been revered and honored in his community. And it seems the most likely that he would have been part of a group called the Sanhedrin. Uh, And if you're not up on your first century Jewish politics, first off, shame on you. Uh, But what 
What, what you should think about when you hear that term Sanhedrin, one book described it uh, this way, that it was a, a mix of the United States Senate and the Supreme Court. So a lot of power and a, a lot of authority blended together there. It was a group of 70 men led by the high priest, and they kind of served as the governing body of the nation of Israel. Uh, and so these guys had power, they had knowledge, they were known for being holy because of how they uh, upheld the law, and, and these guys sort of had all the cards. Interesting note with Nicodemus in, in this particular encounter is that he seeks out Jesus. Uh, other encounters that we see, Jesus is the initiator. A couple weeks back, we saw the Samaritan uh, woman at the well, and she clearly was not looking uh, to encounter Jesus, but did. Here, Nicodemus is interesting because he's the instigator. He goes and finds Jesus to have a conversation. And then we want to understand kind of the context of, of what's going on here in John chapter 2. The, the previous chapter, we see uh, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana, and then followed from that, we see uh, Jesus clearing the temple with great passion and, and great authority. Uh, and so John's gospel really just kind of hits the ground running with, with Jesus and his ministry. And we see at the very end of, of John chapter 2 uh, a, a verse that I think gives us a good context for, for Nicodemus and his visit and his inquiry. And we see that in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he, this being Jesus, was performing and believed in his name. So there's clearly a lot more going on in Jerusalem and with Jesus than we're told in, in John chapter 2 uh, prior to Nicodemus. Between miracles and signs, Jesus was clearly trending in Jerusalem. Hashtag, who is this guy? Like, he was the talk of the town. And so we see this in, in, in Nicodemus' opening question he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. There's something about Jesus. You are so far from ordinary. He wants to know more. He wants more information. And then in this encounter, we do get one more detail, and that is that this uh, meeting takes place at night. Uh, there has been plenty of speculation about this, sort of why did Nicodemus come uh, at night? What was the motivating factor behind that? Why does John include that as a detail? Um, was Nicodemus maybe embarrassed about his intrigue? Uh, would he have maybe jeopardized his status on the council if, if one of them knew that this uh, leader had sought out a conversation with Jesus? What was it that prompted this rendezvous under the cover of darkness? Maybe it was just simply practical. He's not in Alaska. He would have been in a hot Middle Eastern location, and, and it would have been common in that time for a, a lengthy conversation to occur later in the evening when it's dark, under the cool of night. So he was hoping to have a, a longer conversation with Jesus, so he needed um, that, that comfortable setting and take advantage of, of nature's air conditioning. Maybe it was just that Jesus was too popular during the day, and Jesus clearly had crowds around him, and as he performed miracles, crowds followed him, and uh, so Nicodemus maybe felt that, that he couldn't have a real conversation because there was too many other people there, too many people vying for Jesus' attention, and, and so he wanted to have a, a non-distracted conversation with Jesus, so maybe he came in the evening because of that. And some have argued that, that 
John, as the writer of this gospel, is actually just using night as a, a symbolic detail, that it, it represents Nicodemus's coming in a state of spiritual darkness more than it represents uh, the time of day. Uh, Pastor Eric, a couple weeks back, mentioned that, that John, and particularly in his gospel, really emphasizes this light and darkness, and, and we're certainly going to see that contrast here in chapter 3. Now, I sort of, as I read through and study, I lean towards a conclusion that's mostly practical with sort of some symbolic undertones. Um, I think John is, is recounting the setting uh, of the meeting, but it does play nicely into John's later explanations between light and dark. So I, I think that's there purposefully, but I also think Nicodemus came at night because that made the most sense. Um, we, we get a clue from Nicodemus actually in his initial uh, statement to Jesus that he didn't come alone. Nicodemus says, we know, and then goes on to, to say his statement. Um, so either there were people there with him, like he came with his sort of disciples to have the conversation, or he was coming as sort of an ambassador or asking questions on maybe on behalf of the Sanhedrin or some of the other teachers. So he was speaking for them. We know this about you, Jesus, and, and we're trying to figure out more. So I don't think that, that Jesus, uh, that this meeting was to be secretive or being sneaky. I don't think that's why night uh, was, was an important detail. We also see something that, that, that's important to note for, for Nicodemus. We see a humility in his approach to Jesus. Uh, he calls Jesus rabbi, even though Jesus had no formal training. So he, he really elevated Jesus with, with respect by referring to him as rabbi. Uh, and this would have been what others called Nicodemus. He would have been called rabbi or teacher. And so for him to give that term to Jesus, it, it puts them on the same level. He's not speaking down to Jesus. He's speaking uh, level to Jesus. I don't think that we are to hear in Nicodemus's tone sarcasm. Uh, I hear sarcasm in everything, but that's just the way that I'm wired. But I don't think uh, Nicodemus was being sarcastic. I think he's doing his best to figure out who this Jesus guy is. And so I think that's kind of the, the picture that, that we have, the context for this late night visitor to Jesus. And we know a lot about him just from a few little details. He took his religion more seriously than you do. He knows the Old Testament better than you do, and he obeys it better than you do. Those are all generalities, but I feel fairly, fairly confident in those statements. So Nicodemus stands before Jesus just trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy? And I will tell you, that's a good question. And he starts this dialogue, and he actually, if you read the first verse, he doesn't even ask a question, actually, in his opening statement. You can tell that he's sort of being polite uh, he's kind of laying the building blocks for a question that he's going to probably get to uh, in a little bit. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. No question. We all know that that person, you've had a conversation with somebody, and it takes them 15 minutes to get to the question that they've been wanting to ask you from the very beginning. And, and Jesus just goes right past that. Nicodemus kind of... Uh, Oh, I lost my spot. There we go. Uh, Jesus cuts him off right before he, he gets uh, to the point and says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Uh, and so in other conversations, Jesus takes different tacks. He doesn't always approach 
people in the same way. The, the, the woman at the well, that conversation goes differently. And here, Jesus gets right to it. Nicodemus, do you want to see the kingdom of God? You need to be born again. They could have had a, a theological conversation for hours and kind of danced around that point, but instead Jesus takes a sledgehammer to the foundation of Nicodemus's thinking. And it, it really leaves Nicodemus unsettled. Verse four, it says this. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So we see in this section that Nicodemus was confused by Jesus. This wasn't uh, a sarcastic response. Nicodemus tries to take literally what Jesus meant about birth, and he ends up sort of asking a truly ridiculous question about reentering the womb. Uh, he's not trying to be shocking. He's not trying to be rude or, or dismissive. He's just that lost. Uh, the conversation just, woo, right over, right over the top there. And I think he went into this conversation with expectations. You sort of are about to have a conversation with somebody. You plan it all out in your head. And I think he went in with this idea that they would kind of have this philosophical back and forth and debate the law. And then eventually Jesus would praise Nicodemus and tell him how well he has followed the law. I think that's what he was expecting, but that's not Jesus's response to him. Now, back up for just a second, and I want you to kind of ask yourself, are you relatable to Nicodemus? Do you uh, see yourself in the character of, of Nicodemus? Now, I doubt that there are many of us here that would self-identify as Pharisees, um, I don't think that in our particular culture, an over-following of the rules is a particular struggle for most of us. Now, there are some of us here that do love a good rule. I don't want to undersell that. But I think where Nicodemus is relatable is that there are many people like Nicodemus who try to follow God in an outside-in sort of way. That if I can clean up my outside enough, then God will look at me and be happy enough with me. God will realize that I'm trying really hard and, and how far I've come and, and if you only knew kind of where I started and what I had to overcome. Now, if your family is, is anything like mine, we went through a, a, uh, a home remodel TV show phase. I don't know if anyone else has, has went through this, this phase uh, in their life. There, there's so many of these different shows out there and they're all just so inspiring. And if you followed the plot of any of them, it goes like this. You go and you buy a house for like $77, okay? And then you strip it down to the studs and then you put in like a couple thousand dollars and a little bit of elbow grease and a few hours later you sell it for $250,000. Does that sound about right? Am I, have I summed up that genre? Jesus looks at Nicodemus's house, sort of the house of his life, and says, Nicodemus, it's not a fixer-upper. It's condemned. You can't fix this from the outside. There's too much structurally wrong. You can't put fresh sheetrock over a sin problem and just hope that it goes away. Jesus tells Nicodemus, the only solution is to bulldoze and start over. 
Now, I don't know which direction you drove to get to, to church uh, this morning, but there's a building over at the golf course that came to this conclusion. The only thing you could do is just knock it down and bulldoze it and start over. Sometimes that's the right solution. But Nicodemus doesn't see that in himself. He's not a fixer-upper. He's kind of pretending that nobody's ever lived in his house. It's, it's still clean. It's still perfect. Jesus, would you tell me how good I am? Jesus, tell me how good I'm doing. But that's not how Jesus responds to him in this section. Jesus actually doubles down. Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, then you've got to start over. The kingdom of God is not found by adding more to your life, more laws, more obedience, more self-earned righteousness. He says, in fact, the kingdom of God is found by not relying on yourself at all. You don't add holiness to your life. You replace it with Jesus's. You don't earn grace. You receive grace. The kingdom of God is not something you find by searching harder. Look at what Jesus tells him in verse 5. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And that word unless, uh, it does not leave a lot of wiggle room. There's only one way. There's only one way to do it, and that's to start over, to be born again. And we see the Apostle Paul later in, in his letter, letters pick up uh, this same idea. You see it in 2 Corinthians uh, and, and words it a little bit differently than the way Jesus says it, but he's saying the same point. Paul says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. This doesn't sound like a remodel to me. Now, I think it can be fairly common for us to think of our faith in Jesus as just an upgrade, right? Uh, sort of a better version of, of what we are, a, a better version of, of what, what we were. See, Nicodemus is looking for an earthly solution to a spiritual problem. Jesus says, I, I don't want you to clean yourself up. I want you to be brand new. I want to make you new again. The only solution to a spiritual problem is a supernatural solution. The only solution is to be reborn. Now, you might be able to clean up uh, the outside. We all do a pretty good job uh, on a Sunday morning of cleaning up. You guys all look really nice. People at home might be in your jammies, no judgment, but you know, we clean up pretty good when we come here to church on a, on a Sunday morning. I have a whole section in my closet reserved for clothes that I wear for three hours once a week, like we have. Maybe that's just me, but... We clean up nicely on Sunday. This is the nicest version of me, okay? That's all I'm gonna say. We clean up on the outside, but only God can remake the inside. And Jesus uses the example of, of the wind, and like the wind, he says, the spirit of God goes where it pleases, good luck trying to control it. It isn't something that we can force to work on our behalf. Jesus says, Nicodemus you can't fix you. Only God and his spirit can do that. And with all that, unfortunately, Nicodemus remained in the dark. He says this in verse nine, how can this be, Nicodemus asked? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? 
No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up too, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Nicodemus remained in the darkness. See, Nicodemus isn't putting together the puzzle. He's, he's baffled. He's confused. He's, quite frankly, disturbed. He's been living his life in a way that, that theoretically should earn him God's favor and passage into heaven. But what Jesus is saying and, and, and what Nicodemus is thinking, Jesus doesn't fit into Nicodemus's box. Jesus doesn't fit into Nicodemus's way of thinking. And we see some, I don't know if it's sadness or frustration or disappointment, but, but Jesus is disappointed in, in Nicodemus's response, so he continues to explain it to him. And he says, well, Nicodemus, you're, you're actually not the first person to struggle to figure this out. He says, let's look back at the scriptures the, the, to see a circumstance where, where the Jews uh, in, in the Torah, they struggled to trust God, and, and they wanted to live life their own way. And so Jesus points to uh, an example about Moses and the Israelites from Numbers chapter 21. And maybe it's not a part of the Bible that you read all the time, but there's some good stuff in there. And uh, he's going to tell this story about uh, Moses and a, and, a, and a bronze stake. And um, a funny thing about this particular story, actually, last summer, uh, I was a part of a team and we were uh, serving on a missions team in the Czech Republic, and they actually tried to incorporate this story from Numbers chapter 21 into the, the gospel presentation. So when we go over there, they kind of have some talks that are outlined with the tie-in with the themes of camp and things like that. Uh, and we actually, it was really interesting. Um, this story that I'm, we're going to share together this morning deeply confused uh, the Czech non-Christian students that we were uh, talking to, and uh, they ended up having more questions uh, about uh, the snake, and, and it kind of almost distracted them uh, from the point. And I was going to say they went on rabbit trails, but I think they went on snake trails and tried to find answers to that. And so actually by the time that we got there, so we served uh, on the third camp, uh, they had gotten rid of that part and just cut it out. They're like, no, we're just going to focus on Jesus because bronze snakes is very confusing to a, to a non-Christian. Um, that said, Jesus thought it was important, and he incorporates it in in his response to Nicodemus. So I don't want to just uh, jump over it this morning, and I want to pull out why Jesus included that. If you're not familiar, the, the short version of what's happening in Numbers 21 is the Israelites are grumpy, and they're in the desert. Tell me if you've heard this before. And they say that they're out of food, and they say that they're out of water, but they're not really out of food. They just are sick of the same food. Uh, and so they, as a nation, are on the verge of a mutiny. And so God sends venomous snakes among them, and starts, they start biting, and Israelites start dying. And this wakes up the nation of Israel. They, they come to Moses, and, and they beg him to beg God to take them away and to save them. So Numbers 21, 8 and 9 says this, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. They didn't need medicine. They didn't need somebody to, to sort of heroically, you know, suck out the venom like we've all seen in movies. He says, the only solution to their problem was to look at the bronze snake and live. There was not a plan B. 
And that's the point that Jesus is making to Nicodemus here. There's no plan B. He says, look to me, look to Jesus as the savior for salvation and live. All other plans lead to death. The story of the Israelites is is powerful because it's this combination of, of faith combined with an action, an active faith that leads to salvation. Here's what, what, what Jesus said in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. So Jesus is declaring that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Salvation is through him and him alone. Then the story with Nicodemus ends. We don't get the aha moment that we see in some other encounters with Jesus. Nicodemus comes in the dark, and we sadly see that he's going to leave in the dark. He was trying to get Jesus to, to kind of fit into his box, his box of obedience and holiness, and, and the only real answer is that he needs a new box. Then we come to what is the most well-known uh, verse in the Bible of John 3.16 and, and following. And it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, if I uh, had asked you who Jesus was talking to uh, right before John 3.16, do you think that you would have said Nicodemus? Um, John gives this very powerful statement that that so many people are familiar with, um, but I think as we we put it together with the story of of Nicodemus, we really get the context of what John is hoping that we will see, uh, and and we, we have a clearer uh, understanding of, of John 3.16 and following. Now, we may, uh, you might run into a little bit of a translation uh, battle, depending on which version uh, of, the, of the Bible you have there uh, in front of you. Should this section be quoted or should it not? Did Jesus say John 3.16 or did John uh, write John 3.16 uh, and the, the following? So we do run into uh, some challenging uh, understandings when it comes from the original Greek because the original Greek does not use quotation marks like we're used to in English. And, and it was the job of the, of the translators to, to decide where a quote started and stopped and, and who it was, uh, if it was a quote or, or not. Uh, and so this particular section, the, uh, John 3, 16 through uh, 21, has been debated. Um, who said it and, and should it be quoted? Should it be uh, in red if you have the, the red letter Bible, or, or is this something that John said? Um, and I would tell you, I hold this pretty uh, open-handed, but I see this section as actually John, uh, as his sort of pastoral response to the encounter with Nicodemus. Um, he says, he speaks about, uh, in John three sixteen about Jesus in, in the past tense, for God so loved the world that he gave his one 
and only son. And I think that makes more sense coming from John than it does Jesus speaking it about, about himself. Now, Jesus, knowing what was gonna happen, certainly could have, and, and so I don't, I don't think we're, we get ourselves into trouble with, with either uh, conclusion. Um, I think it all boils down to the point is, what are you gonna do with Jesus on the cross? I mean, that's the point that John 3.16 is trying to make regardless if Jesus said it or John. Because the reality is that God's love requires a response. Now, if you, uh, if you keep reading on after Nicodemus, uh, we'll get to a story that we've already covered uh, here in this series about the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. And we're supposed to see a link between these two. Um, they both had an encounter with Jesus. They both were presented um, with the same data, the same information, and yet, they both had completely different experiences. If I told you beforehand, if this was the, the setup, two people get to meet Jesus. One of them has a huge section of the Bible memorizes, memorized, follows all the rules in the Bible. And the other one is on their fifth husband and is intentionally avoiding people right now because they're ashamed of their past. Who's your money on to figure out who this Jesus guy is better? But regardless of our background, regardless of our story, regardless of our context, we all need to get slapped in the face with who Jesus is. Maybe you've been dealt tough cards. Maybe you've been dealt great cards. I like the old saying, the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. Amen? We have to ask ourselves, what are you going to do with Jesus? Now, I think, uh, I think John says it pretty well, so I'll, I'm just going to read what he says because... I like how he said it. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now, John reminds us that, that God is a sending God that God loves us enough to send Jesus, that God loves us enough to pursue us, that God offers us a way to live free of condemnation and that it isn't just by following all the rules. When we understand what God has done for us, we do choose to live a life of obedience, but it's, it's motivated by love and not to earn God's favor. Now, John paints a, a pretty stark contrast between a world separated by light and dark. He says some will choose the light and some will choose the dark. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus tells Nicodemus and he's telling us, look to him. There is one path to salvation. It is a narrow road, but will you walk it? If you've walked that road, will you help point other people to that road and show them the one path? Jesus calls Nicodemus to come into the light. He calls the Samaritan woman to come into the light. He calls each and every one of us to step out of the darkness of our sin and step into his light and be reborn. Now, 
We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We are called to look as an act of faith towards Jesus. And he says, whoever does that has the right to become a child of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you've taken that step, rejoice for what God did for you. If you haven't, think about what you need to have God do for you. We don't change ourselves from the outside in. God changes us through rebirth from the inside out and does for us what we can never do for ourselves. And praise God for that. Amen? Let me pray. Amen, brother. Hey, Lord, I am thankful. Is in ways that words fall short. Thanks for Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to encounter his light this morning. Thank you for us allowing, allowing us to, to wrestle with who he is and, and what he calls us to. Heavenly Father, my desire is, is like yours, that you desire that, that everyone would step into the light and pursue you. But Lord, it's up to each of us to decide what we do with that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for his love, so evident and so, so visible as he was lifted up on the cross for our sins. Heavenly Father, thank you for forgiveness offered not through my good works or, or my awesomeness or any of our good deeds, Lord, but because you are good and you love people and you desire to see us all come to you. Heavenly Father, help us whether we've been living our whole life following you or whether this is new or, Lord, whether this is a decision that we need to make, help us to live in your light. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hey, thank you for being here this morning, Bethel. Thanks for joining us online. I'm glad to have you. Have a blessed day.